0: Good morning, everybody. Happy President's Day or weekend, something like that. I don't know. I guess tomorrow is the official President's Day. So uh, as as the sermon is going along, I want you to be thinking about who your favorite president is and let me know on the way out because that would be important to me. All-time favorite president. So you can go back in history as far as you want. I'm just buying time until I get set up here. Now I'm ready to go. Okay. Good morning. My name is Frank. If you're new to Redemption Arcadia, thank you for being here this morning. Uh, Wanted to mention, um, uh, if you remember, we took an offering Christmas Eve. Some of you remember we took an offering for uh, uh, IRC and New Roots. And um, very excited that uh, this week they took the money that we offered a little over $10,000 on Christmas Eve offering, combined it with some of the other redemption congregations, and they bought a, a tractor for the farmers, a John Deere tractor, and somehow they were able to work a really good deal. They got this tractor uh, for about $36,000. It's probably a fifty dollars or $55,000 tractor, but we had some people on the inside. Isn't it funny how churches always seem to have somebody on the inside somewhere? So we were able to get... Uh, somebody in Gilbert was on the inside and helped us out with that. Uh, I just wanted to update you on that. We're very excited about that. They got video of it, and we're going to show you the video probably in another two or three weeks once they have it all put together, and the video will be on our website as well. So you'll be able to view it there, but we're also going to show it in here. So I just wanted to update you on on uh, how the money's being uh, used, and it was very exciting. Tyler was able to be there uh, when they brought in the tractor. I don't know if he actually drove the tractor. That would have been fun to watch. but. Um, I'm trying to get the tractor to our congregation so that we could maybe drive it around some Sunday morning, like have a high attendance day at our Redemption Arcadia or something. Anyway, so let's move on. Uh, if you will turn to Ephesians chapter 3, that is the only place we're going to be in the scripture this morning. I know the last few weeks I've been having you flip around and, and that can get uh, a little tough sometimes, but we're only going to be in Ephesians chapter 3 and a little bit in chapter 4 this morning, the reading that Eugene uh, just gave for us. Uh, If you're new, I want to review a little bit for you what we've been doing. This is the fourth week of a six-week series called uh, Growing or Building a Stronger and Better Church. And it's a series that we are actually doing uh, in a way that's what we call locally contextualized. And the reason we say that is, again, if you're new to Redemption, Redemption Church Arizona is one church with six congregations, and we are the Arcadia uh, manifestation uh, of those six congregations. And so ordinarily what we do at Redemption is we all preach the same series and the same texts, and we go through the same things. We weekly have a a preaching collective where we get together and compare notes uh, so that we can all be kind of on on the same page. But during this six weeks, we're specifically preaching in a locally contextualized uh, way, uh, uh, proclaiming and presenting our vision for each local congregation as the lead pastor in each congregation. And so uh, we haven't been doing the collective, we've been pretty much preaching on what we think each of our congregations need as we lead them. Um, Now, Big R Redemption Church is gospel-centered and outward-focused, and we believe that all of life is all for Christ. And so little R Redemption Church at Arcadia, uh, what we are saying is that we want to know Christ. This is our vision. We want to know Christ, but we also want to love our community. So we understand that knowing Jesus is extremely important, that being part of the church is that we know and study and proclaim the gospel and the word of God, but that, not, that doesn't compel us to turn in on ourselves, but rather it compels us to go out and love our neighbors and also uh, proclaim to our neighbors and our community and to the world the excellencies of him who brought us out of the darkness and into his marvelous light, as, as Peter says. And so we've been talking about characteristics of a stronger and better church. And three weeks ago, we started uh, with the idea that that the church needs to be unified in Christ. That would be a a strong characteristic. Two weeks ago, we talked about the importance of proclaiming the gospel and proclaiming the word, that that is the church's first mandate. Last week, we talked about uh, the importance of generosity. And we talked about generosity from the perspective that it is a generosity of spirit and that we are able to be generous, not just with our money, but with every other currency that we have in our lives. So uh, time, talent, and treasure. And the reason we can do that is because God was generous to us first. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about the importance of confession. And then uh, the last week, week six, we're going to talk about mission, being called and sent. Uh, this week, we're talking about prayer. Uh, the, the passage that Eugene just read for you is Paul's one of Paul's prayers, ...for the church at Ephesus. He actually prays twice for them in that letter, but uh, this is the one we chose to work on. And if you know Paul, he likes to pray for all of the churches in his letters. And we are calling prayer the foundation of the church. Prayer the foundation of a a better, stronger, and and great church. Now before we get into this, I want to do a little bit of disclaimer work... ...and then a little work on our perspectives as well. Um, I believe, as I've had conversations with people over the last couple decades that at times we are probably a little bit more critical of our prayer life than we necessarily need to be. Uh, I find this a little bit ironic, but often people who tend to complain about how uh, poor their prayer life, I look at them and say, gee whiz, if I had your prayer life, mine would be better. It's just ironic how people who really lean into prayer seem to be very self-critical of their prayer life. Uh, And I also know that um, no matter how prayerful we are, uh, the reason people sometimes feel that way is because we know that, that prayer is a never-ending journey and we never really arrive at being what we might call the perfect prayer. On the other hand, I've also noticed that as we, as we practice prayer, there are some perspectives that could use some work. And, and so today's message, I, I felt more than any of these six messages, today I feel like needs to be really a balanced presentation. I need to really try to thre- thread the needle uh, today, so I would appreciate it if you could uh, understand that that's what I'm trying to do here. So with that that in mind, let me get started. I did some research. I've been kind of cum- accumulating this, uh, talking to people, looking on the internet, reading some things, asking the question: Why do people pray? Couple things. I didn't only ask Christians, and I didn't only go to Christian websites and Christian documents. I, I just I just wanted to know from anybody why do why do you pray? And also understand this list is not exhaustive. So if the reason you pray is not on here, it's it's not that I'm trying to disrespect you or anything, it's just we could stand here for 30 minutes and do this list. But here's the list that I came up with. Why do people pray? They pray because they're desperate. Uh, They pray because they want something to change, sometimes for the better, that usually means for them, or sometimes for the worse, that usually means for somebody else. Uh, They pray because they want to preserve something, Uh, They pray because they believe in some power or force outside of themselves that they can then uh, appropriate and use for their own benefit if they can figure out how to say just the right prayer. Uh, They pray for understanding. They pray for purpose, direction, guidance, and wisdom. They pray because they, they don't know what else to do. They have run out of ideas, they've run out of their own ways of trying to fix something, and so you hear them say something like, well, there's nothing else that I can do, I might as well pray. So it's like a last resort. People pray because they didn't prepare. I am a college instructor. I know how true this is when I pass out a quiz or an exam and I see the deer in the headlights look, okay? Oh, no, that's today? Okay, well, they immediately start praying. Whether they believe in God or not, they start praying, believe me. People pray for victories. They pray for success. They pray for comfort. They pray for something to end. They pray for something to start. They pray for something not to be taken from them. Uh, one of the most popular prayers I've found is for other people to change, uh, sometimes we, people even pray to curse others. Okay? People pray to get their way. Uh, there, there's, a, uh, there's a marvelous author. His name is Jerry Sitzer. You've heard me mention him before. In 1994, he wrote a, an important book. It's considered a classic now called A Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows Through Loss. And then in 2004, 10 years later, he wrote the sequel to that book called When God Doesn't Answer Your Prayers. It's a marvelous book. I would suggest you read it only after reading A Grace Disguise. Nevertheless, he wrote a book called When God Doesn't Answer Your Prayers. And one of my favorite parts of that book is, is he says, what does God do with the situation when you're a parent and you're, you're at your, your kid's baseball game, basketball game, soccer game, volleyball game, whatever it is, and he uses soccer game as an example. And it's late in the game. you got your 13-year-old out there playing soccer. And at this moment, this is the most important thing that's ever happened in the history of the world, if you're a parent who has a kid playing soccer, you understand that, okay? And it's late in the game, and it's tied two to two. You realize that on both sidelines, you have parents praying that their kid's team would win and that even maybe their child would end up being the star of the game. What is God supposed to do with that prayer? with those prayers it's like he he can't win at all with the exception of maybe with only a few people but we pray for those things we also pray for power influence and control and certainly we pray for health for ourselves and for other people now contrast that list With John chapter 17, and I know this is Jesus praying, but I will tell you that if you're going to model your prayer life after anybody, Jesus probably wouldn't be too far down the list of somebody you'd want to model your prayer life after, and we just got done studying John 17 a few weeks ago. Listen to what Jesus prayed for. He prayed first and foremost that God would be glorified. He prayed also that God would be known. He prayed that God's people, the church, would persevere in the faith. He prayed that God's people, the church, would be unified. By the way, unity is a big issue with Paul as well as you read through his letters. Uh, He prayed that God's people, the church, would have their joy fulfilled in him. And you see at the end of uh, Paul's prayer here that that he talks about being fulfilled in God. That's what we should look for for uh, fulfillment. Uh, he, He prayed that God's people would be protected from Satan. He prayed that God's people would be sanctified in the truth, and then he reminds us that the word of God is truth. He prayed that God's people are sent into the world, not avoiding the world. There is this tendency in so many churches with so many church people that once you become a Christian, you tend to start uh, closing in on yourself, and and really all you want to do is do church in church and never do church outside of the four walls of the church, Jesus says, no, 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 we're going to send you into the world. He prayed that through the church the world would believe in Jesus and understand that the Father had sent him to save sinners, and he prayed that God's love would be in God's people. Now, that's not to say that it isn't okay to pray for stuff. It's not to say that it isn't okay for us to go and pray for the things that we often do pray for out of our needs and out of our wants. I am not bagging on that, but... Uh, What I want to present is that there should be some balance. If you have an imbalance in your prayer life in this area, you might want to look at that. If you're the type of person who only prays the cosmic vending machine in the sky kind of prayers, you might want to listen closely uh, today. For instance, as much as King David, if you read the Psalms, you know that uh, more than half the Psalms were probably written by King David. And as much as King David used to whine and complain and gripe and, and, and called for God to smite others, I mean, he literally did that, he also had balance in his prayers. He, he also prayed about God's glory, prayed about God's goodness, prayed about God's chesed, his loving kindness. He prayed about God's sovereignty, and he prayed about God's mission and purpose. And, and Paul gets this too, especially when it comes to the church. And so that's our kind of our big idea today. Often, messages and studies and seminars on prayer focus on how prayer is important for the individual and the individual's life. And that is true. But today, we want to really focus on why it's also important to the church and to the church's mission, vision, and purpose. So what we're going to do is we're going to work through this passage in Ephesians and then just pull out points of application uh, for the church. And, and I, just let me say before we get started, one of the things that Paul does so well and so consistently in his letters is he prays. In his letters, Paul writes out his prayers for the people in the church and for the church itself, and they are magnificent prayers. Yet of all the things that Paul, the Apostle Paul, is famous for, if you listed his prayers, they would probably be kind of far down on the list. But if you were to measure uh, the importance and the effect of what Paul did, you would see that the, his prayers would probably go back up towards the top of the list. And, and this prayer in, in the book of Ephesians that, that, that Eugene just read for us is, is a great example of that. So he starts off in verse 14 by saying, for this reason. So he's beginning to transition into prayer now. And, and people naturally ask, okay, so for what reason? What reason is Paul talking about? Well, there's one of two possibilities here. Uh, The first possibility is the absolute immediate context of the letter. If you just go back to verse 13, the the verse right before when he starts this prayer, uh, you see that Paul prays that the Ephesians would not lose their heart, that they would not lose hope or be discouraged. And so he prays in regard to their hope and, and their endurance. And that's a good thing to pray for, yes. And that might be specifically why he said for this reason, but... More likely, most of the scholars come down on this, more likely the reason that he is praying refers back to the larger and more central discussion that he had in the last half of chapter 2 about how important it is that the church be unified. And one of the reasons that scholars say this is because the result of this prayer, especially as you go into the first three verses of chapter 4, tend to focus on the importance of of the unity of God's people. And we talked about that in week one, I know, but this ought to just reiterate how important this is uh, in the church and especially for Paul. So let me give you four verses from towards the end of chapter two, the last half of chapter two, that scholars really believe this is pointing back to that Paul writes, and they're, they're compelling verses. He writes in verses 19 through 22 of chapter two, so then... You are no longer strangers and aliens. In other words, you're not, you're not strangers and alienated from each other, uh, which is essentially what their culture was like. And by the way, what our culture can be like as well. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now this is interesting because a lot of people say, well, Paul and Peter really didn't get along. But if you line up these verses against what Peter writes in 1 Peter, they sound very similar. It sounds like they're on the same page. It sounds like they believe the same things and want the same things for their people. So he says that the the household of God, the church, is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone "...in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord." That sounds like Peter's language ripped right out of 1 Peter. That you And he's talking about us as the people of God, that we would be knit together by our souls and grow up into one structure that honors and glorifies God. That's what the church is supposed to do, that we're unified. And then he says in verse 22, "...in Him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God." By the Spirit, that would be the Holy Spirit. So this plea for unity in Christ is what most scholars believe that Paul is trying to get at when he prays here, and it's a great thing to pray for. And we need that too. Every church needs prayer for unity and prayer for understanding of how important unity is. Furthermore, I would suggest, and some of the scholars suggest this too, that, that, that this reminds us that God's actions... God's activity in our lives, his, his love for us and his desire to be one is manifested in, in, in uh, the unity of Christ, uh, the resurrected Christ and in the unity that the Father and the Son have together, which you can read about in John 17, uh, that, that, that these actions that God uh, has in our lives, they call for response and they call for thankfulness. Uh, We don't just receive the activity, the good activity of God in our lives and sort of shrug our shoulders and and move on. When God works in our lives, we should respond in in prayer and with gratitude, with thankfulness, and we should even respond by telling people. Many of you know that uh, my wife Jackie had emergency uh, appendectomy surgery a couple of weeks ago. Tomorrow will be two weeks since that time. i got to tell you, it's amazing. There are so many backstories to everything that happened uh, it was it was it was really uh, amazing, and there's so much that we have to be thankful, according to those backstories. For instance, I'll just give you three of them. Uh, first of all, first one is that uh, Jackie was supposed to be in Nicaragua when this happened. She had planned to go to Nicaragua with some relatives and some friends to do some mission work and do some other things. She was supposed to be in Nicaragua, Nicaragua, and and she was looking forward to going. She was going, and she was excited about going. and she had arranged it with all of this stuff, and then it fell through, and and she wasn't able to go. Everybody else went, but she was not able to go. She was pretty thankful that she wasn't in Nicaragua when she got sick. That's not a diss against the hospitals down there. It's just she wanted to be here. She wanted to be where her family was. She was very thankful about that. By the way, you never know when God will intervene and keep you from doing something that you wanted to do, and you're frustrated about that, you never know when that's really God actually trying to protect you and preserve you. And, and Jackie really feels like that was what happened in this case. Uh, second of all, uh, some of you know this story, we went to the emergency room at about 4.30 Monday morning and we were there for six hours and had all kinds of tests run on her and they sent her home with a different diagnosis than appendicitis. And, and they gave her some antibiotics and some pain pills and sent her home. And, and so uh, about 5.30 Monday night, um, a specialist, a surgeon who has done more than 1,000 appendectomies, went by and read the CAT scan again and said, uh, you need to get this woman back in here. She has appendicitis. And so the hospital called her and said, you need to get back in here right away. And so we rushed her back in. Pretty thankful that that happened. It could have been a lot worse if, if that hadn't happened. And then when we went back in, during the time that she was being prepared for surgery, <clears throat> we found out that one of the nurses there happens to attend Redemption Arcadia. So we felt like we were on the inside, man. We were getting inside information, you know? Ooh, don't let him touch it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Nothing like that, but it was, just, it was just awesome to know that we had somebody there who was, who was you know, knitted with us and, and who could advocate for us. So Jackie had surgery, yes, big bummer. Don't ever want to go through that again. But we are thankful and we're prayerful about what happened in the midst of that. And so Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Ah, that's an indication that he's praying. That's his little code language. I bow my knees before the Father that he's praying. So this may shock some of you, but others, you're kind of going, yeah, I want to talk about this. I was in a conversation Friday with a guy who said, I want to talk about this. I said, okay, let's talk about it. There's the question that a lot of people are asking. This is a big debate. Did Paul really bow his knees when he wrote this part of the letter? Was he physically prostrate when he was writing this this letter? Was he he bowing down? Is this literal or is this a metaphor for something else? There's a big debate. You read the scholars are back and forth talking about this. Books have been written on prayer. You know that. A historical review of prayers and stuff. And many of these books include a historical review of the various physical positions that people would assume when they would pray over the centuries, okay? So people have written about this. Many others, however, assert that it's not necessarily the physical posture that matters, but it's your heart. It's your attitude. You know, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 that we are to pray without ceasing. Some of you know that verse, right? Pray without ceasing, okay? Well, if you're the type of person who only prays with your eyes closed and your head bowed I don't want you praying when you are driving I would rather you text and drive at least occasionally you look up when you're texting okay so so you have to start to think about how this might be applied I'm not saying that posture isn't important certainly there are times when our posture how we behave physically when we pray can eliminate certain distractions in our prayer life that's very helpful to do that. So I'm not saying that. I I will tell you, this conversation always makes me think of the Chris Tomlin song, Holy is the Lord. Uh, I don't know if uh, any of you know the song. Uh, I'll I'll give you the first, uh, is this verse, stanza, whatever, the first group of words that we sing. Okay, so we stand and lift up our hands, For the joy of the Lord is our strength. We bow down and worship him now. How great and awesome is he. And together we sing and everyone sings. Holy is the Lord God. Okay, so some of you know that song. Chris Tomlin's song. We used to sing that song a lot at the church I was at before. Paradise Valley Community Church. And and it was interesting because as we would sing that song in that church, you could look, and by the way, the the, the sanctuary was about the same size as this. As As you looked out across uh, the sanctuary when people were singing that song we get to that first line where we would sing we stand and lift up our hands and all across the church people's hands would go up okay but we get to that third line <clears throat> where it says we bow down and worship him now there was nobody hitting the floor nobody even bent their waist I didn't even see necks tilting down okay nothing and there was this one guy at our church this used to just drive him crazy. He re- it just really bothered him. And I knew every time we did the song, after church, he would come and find me no matter what. Even if I was in the bathroom in a stall hiding from him, he would come and find me. He said, we did that song again, and people were raising their hands, and I didn't see anybody hitting the floor when they said, we bow down. So finally one day I said, oh, well, Don, did, did, did you hit the floor? He said, no, I didn't, but at least I didn't raise my hands either. Hey, got me there, okay, thank you. Uh, Here's the deal, I agree with what Matthew Henry writes on this. Paul's admonishment in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, pray without ceasing, is certainly more about our hearts and attitude than posture. Here's what Henry writes, he says, what is of true importance is that we reverence God in our hearts always, sometimes that means we physically prostrate ourselves, Other times, it's just our hearts. So it depends. So whether Paul is bending his knee or not is not as important as the message he sends. The important message that he sends is that he's serious about this prayer. This is important. Take heed, listen to it. And and he's really focused on this. And as a result, we should be too. Especially about our purpose as the bride of Christ. And this prayer is about our purpose as the the bride of Christ, as, as God's people. So he says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is is named. We are God's children. We we are his family. We are the family of God. And, And as such, he loves us, he cares for us, he wants the best for us, and he thinks about us nonstop, whether we realize it or not. Just because you're not thinking about God doesn't mean that he isn't thinking about you. He's always thinking about you. As you can imagine, I'm in a lot of hospitals, trying to minister to people, serve people. Uh, two weeks ago, I was in the weird position of being in the hospital uh, because my wife was there having emergency surgery. And, and I got to tell you, a little bit of an identity crisis, okay? Am I a pastor? Am I a husband? What do I, uh, what do, I do? I don't know. So I did nothing. I let. No, I'm kidding. I, I hung out there, you know. So... When I'm in the hospital with somebody who isn't my wife, okay, I, at some point, obviously I pray with them, but at some point I will ask them the question, what can I do for you? Is there anything you need? What, what can I get you? What can I, how can I help you? How can I serve you? And, and I asked Jackie this question. We, we prayed together, and then when we were done with the prayer, I, I said to her, I said, what do you need? What can I do for you? How can I help you during this time? And you've got to understand the context, okay? Jackie's 45 years old. Uh, she's a, a group fitness instructor and a, and a volleyball coach, and she's into physical fitness and nutrition and all that stuff. And, and she has never been, other than cold, she's never been sick in her life. She's never been on an antibiotics. She's never had anything even remotely close to this happen to her. A- and she was scared. You know, I'm going, it's routine appendectomy surgery. Uh, surgery. It's nobody. She's like, Frank, it's surgery people die from surgery I mean she was and she was really really scared a little bit of a tear and so I asked her this question in the midst of 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 her being frightened about this and and she gave me an answer that I have never had in the hospital before and her answer was a beautiful picture believe it or not of God's love for me how much God loves me I asked her what do you need what can I do for you and she said take care of our children Take care of our children. That was her first concern. Nothing else, our children. Now, do you remember when Jesus prayed in John chapter 17? Jesus prayed that the Father would take care of us, that he would protect us. We are constantly on his mind, constantly. We can't escape it. There's nowhere we can go. And and as a result, the church is constantly on his mind as well. We are empowered by Him. We are also loved by Him. So Paul then prays that according to the riches of His glory, not our glory, He would give us strength with power through His Spirit in our inner being. In our inner being. The prayers for the church and for the people of God, one and the same most people would say, these prayers are virtually always focused on empowering us spiritually. Empowering us spiritually so that we would know Christ better and be able to make Him known to those who don't know Him yet. So that we would become more like Jesus in our lives. So that all of our life would truly be all for Jesus Christ. So that we could serve and minister and advocate for justice, not just for the people who are in the church, but also people outside of the church, people in our community and people in the rest of the world. So that we could proclaim the excellencies of the one who brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And all of these things take strengthening by the power of the Holy Spirit in our souls, in our inner beings. Colin Cruz writes that, the strength of the inner man is the most desirable strength that you and I can have. Because the strength of the inner man is what gives us staying power, persistence, patience, endurance, and compassion. All things that we need to be the church, all things that we need in order to be able to carry out the mission and the vision and the purpose of the church, those are the things that that we need. Many of us go... Every day to a gym, to LA Fitness, or we run, or whatever that is. Many of us go, and and we are intent on strengthening our outer being, right? What are you doing to strengthen your inner being? Uh, Again, I I just filled with Jackie stories this morning. Um, Post-surgery, she had three days in the hospital of IV antibiotics, and then they sent her home with another week's worth of two very strong antibiotics so it was post-surgery and and she had no appetite i mean she's like forcing three bites of small bird-sized bites of food down at each meal and and i will tell you again this vibrant healthy woman i've never seen her uh physically as emaciated as she as she has been since this happened i mean she just she it it was one minute she's healthy the next minute It's amazing how quickly our outer beings can perish. Now, she's coming back. She's she's doing better and better and better. But here's the thing. Her inner being never wavered. Her inner being was strong throughout this whole thing. Her inner being was focused. And I know that because she told me to take care of our children. Her inner being was connected. She knew that she was still God's. She has a strong inner being. That's important for us. It really is. Paul then says that this strengthening is so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith and being rooted and grounded in love. So, as we are saying, this strengthening is so that Jesus would not just capture our hearts, but that he would captivate our entire lives. And he prays that we would be rooted and grounded in love. And I I, I really love this. Rooted and grounded literally means to be firmly tethered and deeply established. Rooted and grounded, firmly tethered and deeply established. Let me give you a critical difference here between what Paul says is supposed to go on in the church and and what our culture practices. Our culture tends to anchor rather than root. Our culture tends to anchor rather than root, and there's a big big difference. We, We anchor. We find something that we like, We find something that tickles our ears, something that we think is cool, and then we drop anchor. And it appears as though we've committed. It it, it looks like we're staying, but it's an anchor. It's not roots. And the minute we don't like it, the minute we get uncomfortable, the minute our delicate 21st century sensibilities are offended in the slightest way, the minute our ears are no longer tickled, the minute we perceive something isn't cool anymore, we just pull up anchor and leave and go somewhere else that we like, and then we drop anchor Again, Paul says no. Paul says no, 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 no. When it comes to the church, don't drop anchor. Grow roots. In fact, in Christ, we eliminate anchors. We only have roots. And it's interesting that the, the key word to this rooting is love. And again, understand, Paul has a different Understanding of what love means than what our culture tends to uh, promote and advocate. Uh, again, Paul's understanding of love is so different than ours. Our understanding of love is, is that it's a feeling and that, that love is driven by emotions, and we, 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 we have to feel like it if we're really going to do it, and, and we're not authentic if we don't also feel it. And love is, love is, love is part of our heart, and it's not cognitive. That's kind of our culture, the way we treat love. Now, Paul does want us to love in our hearts, yes. He believes in affect. He believes in emotions. He believes in affective love, yes. But Paul also teaches, more often than not, it's certainly more than half the time, he teaches that love is also cerebral, it's intentional, it's mindful, it's a function of wisdom, gratitude, and generosity, that love is volitional. We don't love because we feel like it. We love because we are called to it in Christ. That's what Paul says Uh, in, in Paul's prayer in the book of Philippians. In chapter 1, verse 9, he's praying for the church at Philippi and he prays to them, I pray that your love may abound more and more. This is sounding good. He wants our love to abound more and more. But then he says this, I want your love to abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. He didn't say, I want your love to abound with feelings. He said, I want your love to abound with understanding and wisdom, knowledge and discernment. Hear this. God does not want his people or his church untethered from wisdom, truth, and knowledge. If you're just going to go and do what you feel like doing, we're going to have a problem. And God's going to have a problem too. And God says that one of the ways that we do this is through love through volitional love, through the love of Jesus, through the love of his word, through the love of people, even and especially people that are unlovable, which clearly calls for a volitional kind of love and not a feeling kind of love. He calls us to love the church and to, to love our community as well. And these are mostly decisions that we're going to make, not feelings that we have. So now, he gets to the point in the prayer where he says, the purpose of our inner being, root be, uh, inner being rooted and grounded in love is so that we have the strength to comprehend the breadth, length, height, and depth of who God is and the love of Christ, which is so deep that it is impossible to have a complete understanding of it so that we might be filled with the fullness of God. It's a lot here too. Paul is very thick, my brothers and sisters. So in order to have a, to be a better and stronger church, Paul calls for us to first comprehend exactly who God is. And and the word in the Greek for comprehend is katalumbano. I love that word. It sounds like a dance. You know, like, hey, you want to go Friday night for a little katalumbano? Literally, it means to seize tightly. And what are we to seize tightly? He says the breadth, length, height, and depth of who God really is and his love for us. Again, Colin Cruz writes, by enumerating these dimensions... Paul designs to signify the exceeding greatness and sovereignty of God and the unsearchable riches of Jesus' love. And, and, and again, it's interesting, you know, breadth, length, height, depth. We, we don't really use those words a lot in our vernacular today, in our culture uh, today. But, but the ancients did, and, they, and they, they, they knew these words and they loved these words. And, and so there's studies of how the ancients saw these terms. People 2,000 years ago, how they saw these terms. So let me just give you that. Um, Breadth. Breadth refers to the unlimited array of people included in God's love and grace. The unlimited array of the people who are included in God's love and grace. So Paul says this a couple of different times. Whether you're a slave or a free man. Whether you're a, a, a barbarian or a Roman or a Scythian or a Greek, whether you're a football player, a banjo player, a card player, it doesn't matter who you are. Uh, ethnicity, race, class, neighborhood, none of that matters to God. That's the breadth of who he loves. And then there's the length. The length simply refers to chronologically how long his love and grace will last. And by the way, it'll outlast chronology because it's eternity. It's going to last forever forever. And then that word depth. This is my favorite one. Depth refers to this. No matter what your sin is, no matter, what, no matter how much you guilt you feel that you have in your life, uh, n- n- no matter no matter the misery that you are, God will retrieve you from any depth. You can never go too low for God's grace, love, and mercy. He'll retrieve you, and then the height is the fact that after He retrieves you, He is going to take you into the heavenly heights, the heavenly places. That's the height. So the idea with these dimensions is that He doesn't miss it. There is is no corner of the universe that God is going to miss. My friend Tom says it, like this, he's, there's no maverick mon- molecule that is out of the control of God. He's, he's got this wired completely. And, and interestingly, Paul says that ultimately, as long as we are still on this side of heaven, if you, if you study that, that saying very carefully, we find out that what Paul says is that we're supposed to pursue... Kata Lombano, we're supposed to go after this understanding and comprehension of God's love and who He is and His sovereignty. We're supposed to pursue it, but understand this side of heaven, we're never really going to be able to seize it to the max. We're never going to arrive. That it will be a continuous process of knowing God more, because if you know God more, you tend to love Him more, and then the more you love Him, the more you want to know Him. That's the process. But you never get to this place where you say, okay, that's it, I've arrived, I have a full comprehension of God's love and sovereignty and His grace, but but in fact, this process of constantly pursuing kata lambano, uh, uh, constantly pursuing it, this process is something that we actually enjoy doing, that we look forward to doing. I, I know there are series there there's um, there's seasons of dryness when this happens, but overarching. Overall, we're tending to just continue to pursue Him. No matter how much we do it, we always want more. No matter how much we know Him and love Him, there, there's this feeling like there's more there and we want to pursue it. We're, so we are commissioned to keep at it. Paul says to stay on the journey and to love doing it. It's, it's like... Um, I haven't had this experience in a while, but I, I used to have this experience occasionally. You'd pay money and you'd walk into a movie theater and you'd sit down and you'd watch a movie. And the screenplay was so good and the acting was so good and the story was so compelling that I would literally have thoughts, to my, I, would, I would say to myself, I hope this movie never ends. It's so good that I'm, I'm so entertained, I'm so engrossed in the story. I hope it never ends. Uh, some of you, maybe, in your life, you've been on one of those Dates where you're in the midst of the date and you're going, this is so good, I hope this never ends. I don't want this date to ever end. And so you keep making wrong turns so you can never find how to get or whatever, you know. You know, if you've ever had a date, like I know some of us had the other kind of date, too. When's this thing over with, okay? <laughs> you know, but it's a date. Or, or maybe, I, now, I know I've had this experience. You've got a milkshake that's so good that you're hoping it, that you, just, you never want to hear that slurping sound at the end of the straw. you know what I mean? Okay, I know these are really poor analogies, but you got the point, right? Which means I have done my job. Ultimately, this life, this pursuit of God, of being of being God's people called to his purpose and his mission, ultimately this will fulfill us. Paul is saying this is where ultimate fulfillment comes. Jesus said it too. Peter says it too. It, How many of you want to be fulfilled? I mean, it should be obvious. Every hand should go up. That's like like one of the big life questions. Where am I going to find fulfillment? Well, this is it right here. Be God's people. Be the church. Go on mission. Know Jesus and love our community. That's where we'll find fulfillment. Think of all the ways that we have tried to attain fulfillment in our lives. Uh, Romance, education, Wealth, achievement, politics, food, working out. Sometimes those two go together. A particular cause, ah, save the wolves, I'm for that. Ego casting, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have the most followers on Twitter, the most friends on Facebook, and, and I'm, and I'm going to text more people in my life than anybody else ever has. <laughs> Travel, sleep. I met somebody once. I want to be fulfilled in sleep. The perfect manicure, whatever it is that is going to fulfill you, whatever it is, why do those things ultimately disappoint us? Because they do. Well, it's because they're temporal, they're wasting away. They're a part of this world which is, which is perishing. I, I, was, I was at um, Tuesday morning, I was at Bible study, and, and the leader asked uh, a few of the people there in two to three minutes, give your testimony. And, and one of the guys said this. I wanted what the world offered, but in my pursuit of it, I became emptier and emptier. And now he's being filled up by Jesus Christ. Only in the riches and generosities of God's lavish love, mercy, truth, and community can we find true fulfillment. And, and it's funny because that word translated to be filled is plerethete. It means completion, it means Uh, To be completed, lacking in nothing. Plearethete, it's it's the the, uh, Greek word that we get the English word plethora from. Go and look up the word plethora. It means an embarrassment of riches. That's God's life for us. An embarrassment of riches that he generously lavishes on us. Paul then closes his prayer for the church. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. Listen, God is able. It says God is able. The word is dunamen. It's, it's that word again that we get dynamite from. He has power. He has power. He is more powerful to do more than we can imagine, think of, or, or ask. Redemption Arcadia, we need to understand that our desires actually limit God in many ways. When we only think of what we can do and what, uh, 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 what we want and what we are going out uh, on mission for, when we only think about ourselves and it's void of prayer, we actually put limits on God's because, God because, because in Him there is so much more than our thoughts, our abilities, and our talents. And that's why we must pray. That's why prayer is foundational to all we do. And the result, according to Paul, will be glory for the church, and glory for Jesus. And for us, what will diligent, persistent, and consistent prayer yield for us? We find that in the first three chapters of verse four. Chapter four, let me... uh, First three chapters of verse four. The first three verses of chapter four. Some of you knew what I was talking about. Let me read those, and that's what we'll wrap up with. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy... "...of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace." And, and, and so this is extraordinarily important. This is the, these are the characteristics, or the character, if you want to say it that way, of a better, stronger church. And Paul starts, I love the irony of the way he starts, He's writing this letter while he is a prisoner in Rome. Yet who does he say he's a prisoner of? He says, no, 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 no. I'm not Rome's prisoner. I am Christ's prisoner. That's who I am tethered to. That's who I'm indebted to. That's who I respond to. And that's who I am constrained by. Rome can throw anything it wants at me. It will not exceed the power of the resurrected Christ in me. That's who I am a prisoner of. Every one of us, we need to understand this. Every one of us is tethered to something. I know some of you out there are going, I'm not tethered to anything. I am completely free of all of this stuff. Well, that might mean that you're just tethered to yourself, which is the worst possible thing of all the things in the world. I was tethered to myself for 27 years. It really stunk. What are you tethered to? What is at the end of your tether? And if if Jesus isn't at the end of your tether, I'm telling you there is a better tether for you. And that's what Paul would say here. So, as, as a result of prayer, we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling by God in Christ. Uh, the word translated walk is, it literally means to conduct your life as a manifestation of what is at your core being. And if you are in Christ, your, your life will be conducted according to Christ. And here are the characteristics of that life. Six of them, he says, Humility. That word there literally is a humble mind moderated by introspection. So humility, being humble, is something that we actually have to diligently pursue because it's not our natural default and it is not a spiritual gift. We can only do this in Christ and we have to pursue it in Christ. Better and stronger churches with a mission and a vision are characterized by humility. Then he says gentleness that word gentleness is not a lack of power. A lot of people think it means a lack of power. That's not it. It's not a lack of power, but rather it is power under control. It's power constrained and appropriated by the Holy Spirit. So better, stronger churches with a vision who are on mission are characterized by tremendous power. It's the power of the resurrected Christ in us, but it's also mitigated, appropriated, and constrained and manifested by the Holy Spirit. We're to be patient. That's a compound word in the Greek. It literally means long suffering. Those who are patient are willing to suffer for a long time in order to achieve their goal. And, a, and every church that is on mission and has a vision needs to be willing to do that. A forbearing love for each other we're supposed to have. That forbearing love, we've talked about it. It's unconditional and compassionate. It's It is affectionate and loyal. It's volitional. Better, stronger churches with a vision and on mission must love in a way that the world cannot. And when they look at our love, they say there's really something different going on there, and the reason is because it's Christ in us. Then there's unity. We've talked about this. Another way to say that would be harmony. It's not that we're all the same. In fact, we celebrate our diversity and our differences, but there is a harmonizing factor in all of us, and that is Christ. And lastly, there is in great churches the bond of peace. Jesus is the great peacemaker. He is our bond. And that word peace literally means general welfare for all. In other words, in the church, we're all supposed to be looking at something that's bigger than we are. We are a part of something that's much bigger than us, and that's the church. It's the bride of Christ. So we see in Paul's prayer here that it's, not just a prayer for us, but it is, an, it is a prayer that exemplifies how we can also be praying for the church, for us as a body as we move forward, as we are trying to be what God calls us to be. And We also see that prayer is foundational. It's what we build on. It's at the core of our being if we are to be a better, stronger church. Prayer is foundational to our identity. It reflects who we are and and who abides in us. And it shapes and it strengthens our character. Prayer is also foundational to what we do. We have no power. We have no dunamis. We have no dynamite apart from the resurrected Christ in us. And finally, prayer is foundational to where we are going. Prayer gives us the guidance and the wisdom to understand how to be a part of our community, how to go into our community, how to be sent into our community, and how to love our community. Let me pray, and Josh and Rob will come up and lead us into our time of reflection. God, thank you that that you have thought of everything, it seems. You have even thought of how uh, we can be encouraged and built up by prayer. And so we are thankful for that, and we we just praise you for that. And so, God, as we look at how you behave and act and and direct our lives, we just ask that you would make us a, a body that believes in and practices prayer because it is foundational to who we are, and that we are also thankful for that. God, help us to respond that way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.